0: Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. And would you stand as I read? And immediately he, that is Jesus, left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence, we thank you for the gift of the gospel of Christ, and we thank you for the power of the Spirit who is here with us now. Would you now, Holy Spirit, ready our hearts, open our ears, unblind our eyes, free us from distraction or anxiety, that we might dwell upon you and your word and be transformed And so, Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So, Lord, would you speak? God of glory, would you speak? Father... Speak. Your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. So we jump into a single day. This is a continuation of the same day. Earlier when Jesus is in the beginning of last week, verse 21 where Jesus is in the synagogue at Capernaum on the Sabbath day and they're in the in the synagogue they would gather uh, and they would worship they would hear um teaching usually from a traveling rabbi or traveling teacher and so Jesus is teaching there with authority that they had never seen and never heard before and then it was an authority both in teaching and exercised in power by the casting out of a demon there in the synagogue. So there was a demon in the church, so to speak. And then immediately, verse where we pick up today is the continuation of that day. And what's interesting is that, as I hear, I've never been there, uh, but if you were to go to Capernaum today, you can find both the synagogue or the synagogue that's there now was built later, but you have the foundation of this synagogue that Jesus was in. But also, a stone's throw away, there is the house that is presumed to be Simon's mother-in-law, mother-in-law's house. So this house, you can still go in and and there's evidence inside the house that there are, in various languages, uh, sacred sort of devotional writing, scribbles, scratches on the wall in Greek and in Latin and um, maybe Aramaic or Syriac or something else. Uh, But that, the early church revered this building probably as Simon Peter's mother-in-law's house. And so uh, one day I pray the Lord will enable me to go. But if you're able, ever able to go, you'll probably be able to go to this house. Uh, and it's probably the house that Jesus stayed in a lot because there's no evidence that Jesus had his own house. Um, but there is evidence that he had a home base in Capernaum. And Capernaum, this city on the northwestern side of the Sea of Galilee, serves as Jesus' Galilean ministry base. He continually circles back to Capernaum. He goes across the Sea of Galilee and back to Capernaum. He goes south and back to Capernaum. Oh, always back to Capernaum. Uh, and there's a likelihood that he stayed in this house. But this first time that we have Jesus entering into. Simon Peter's mother-in-law's house she's sick and this text struck me perhaps uniquely because of the season in which our church has been yesterday we had the funeral service for Miss Shelba Maddox and that was the fourth funeral that we've had in less than two weeks here Um, all members and it's just been it's been a lot you know And it's one of the ministries that God has called us to, but it's hard. It's hard to see people that you love and you care about um, depart for glory. We know where they're going. We have full confidence in their faith and more so full confidence in our redeeming Lord. But when Jesus comes into this house, he has he's encountered by this woman who lay ill. And they speak. To Jesus about her. And the, the authority that Jesus exercises on the demon in the synagogue earlier in the day, he exercises his authority here in healing her. That Jesus has, if you will, authority, he has dominion both to preach and to teach. Authoritatively, but he also has authority and dominion to cast out demons, and he has authority and dominion to heal the sick. And what you see in all of these things is that Jesus is stepping into a dark world and he is rolling back the fall. What do I mean by the fall? God created the heavens and the earth, he made them good. Our first parents sinned in the garden and they entered the world, they entered the human race into a fallen state where we are bent away from God and toward sin naturally. We are natural-born sinners that we live in this world that is full of darkness and then we, that we ourselves both perpetrate we commit sin. We we don't commit the, we don't do the things we ought to do. We do the things we ought not to do. We we think things, believe things that dishonor God, that we perpetrate sin, but we also are victims of living in a fallen world. Simultaneously, this brokenness swallows us up. It swallowed up the man who was possessed by a demon in the synagogue However that went down, how a demon came to lay hold of his soul and of his mind, he was swallowed up as a perpetrator and simultaneously a victim. There is no one on earth who is only a victim save the Lord Jesus. That's just an aside as the sort of victim culture that grows in our country. There is only one innocent victim on planet earth. Completely innocent, and his name was Jesus Christ of Nazareth. But he was swallowed up by the domain of Satan. And then you have, in a sort of parallel account, this mother in law of Simon Peter, who's gripped in fever. She's gripped by sickness. There's no indication that she has somehow sinned, that that this is some judgment of God upon him, upon her. That's that's not in the text. And in fact, that's not really in the Bible that often where sickness comes as a judgment. You could think about John chapter nine, where the man who is born blind and his disciples come to Jesus and they say to him, Jesus, who was born, who was who sinned? this man or his parents, that he would be born blind. And Jesus, to the effect, says neither. It's so that the glory of God might be demonstrated in him. So, that, so the sickness that she's suffering, it's not necessarily judgment. Sure, I'm, uh, she is not a perfect woman. Uh, but she is both perpetrator and victim. She's sick. With a fever. Now, this isn't like, let me go get a pack, Swing by and see Dustin and Tracia. They're not in here. At the pharmacy uh, and get some NyQuil. Sleep it off, right? They didn't, they didn't have access to that type of stuff. So fevers were treated very seriously. But what's interesting is that in Luke's gospel, with a, a parallel account recounting the same event, Luke's gospel in chapter 4, verse 39, says that Jesus rebuked the fever. He rebuked the fever. That word rebuke is used only in casting out demons. So here we are with the good people of Capernaum. We are not, right, we're not dealing with the the drug druggies and the prostitutes and the tax collectors. Jesus loves them throughout the gospel. He hangs out with them. He's with them. We're talking about good synagogue going folk. And somehow there is a demonic foothold, stronghold in this Capernaum community. It's showing up in the synagogue. It's showing up in this woman's life that somehow this sickness is a manifestation of Darkness of the powers of darkness, and it requires the authoritative arrival of the sovereign Lord of the universe, Jesus Christ. That his authority is exercised in, sh- in her being delivered, that he proves both in word and in deed that he is in fact sovereign and that he is in fact savior. That he is the sovereign, meaning that he all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus says. That he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. That there's nothing, nowhere, no, no body, no place, and no time that rivals him in the sense of power, authority, and capability. And what's so beautiful here at the bedside of this sick and ailing woman you have the sovereign capability of Jesus meeting his loving compassion. That in Jesus, you don't just have the sovereign, mighty Lord, you have that, no doubt, but you have a compassionate shepherd who recognizes our frailty and our finitude he recognizes our need he recognizes that even people who are hearing the word of god they become beset by darkness both in spiritually physically emotionally we become surrounded at times one of my favorite texts is psalm 103 and in amongst the glory of that passage there is this one phrase that says and he knows our frame. He knows that we are just dust. God knows our weaknesses. He knows that he's fully aware of that we are both perpetrators and victims, and he comes to deal with all of it. He comes as a sovereign, capable, compassionate Savior who will rescue us who does rescue us, whose authoritative word and presence makes the darkness flee. So he proves to be this sovereign savior, this capable, compassionate Lord with Simon's mother-in-law. And he takes her by the hand and lifts her up and she is healed. Now, just because one child of God is healed of sickness does not mean that every child of God gets healed of sickness in this life. Every child of God is going to be fully healed. But it's not on our timetable. And it's not in this life. But as she is Rescued by the Lord, the fever left her. As again, Luke says, the fever, he rebuked the fever. And she rises up and began to serve them. Now, this text has been adulterated and abused as a text to say that women ought to only be servants in the home. You know, barefoot and pregnant. I joke with Sarah Beth about that, and then I... It's only for short moments while I'm, while I'm conscious. And <laughs> <laughs> But this idea that she's rescued by the grace of God, and then she's set to service, it sets her, in the Gospel of Mark, it sets her in elite company. That this word is used, first it's used for angels... In chapter 1, verse 13, the angels were coming and ministering to Jesus. They were serving Jesus, same Greek word. So, so she has angelic company, but even higher than that, we have chapter 10, verse 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many that this is how the new life that she has received in Christ and by his authoritative power, the new life manifests in her life through service. I, told, I think I've said this to a few of our people at different times, that if you're looking for where Jesus shows up, Jesus shows up with a broom in hand inconspicuous in the corner getting to work. He shows up in a way that is humble, meek, mild in the Gospels, but full of power. That service is not denigrating. If you believe yourself to be too good to serve God and others, then dear one, you believe yourself to be too good for the gospel. Because if you're too good to serve, then you're too good to be served. You're too good to have your feet washed by Christ and more so your soul. But this idea of service propels her transformed life. She becomes a servant alongside the angels ministering to Jesus, serving the incarnate Lord And that's a wonderful application for us. If you are a Christian today and you're claiming the name of Christ today, does the life of Jesus show up in your life through service? Now, we have different gifts, different roles, different responsibilities. But are you looking more to serve rather than to be served? Because having been served by Christ, having been rescued and redeemed by the blood of Christ, having been transformed by his mighty action in our hearts, this is an outworking of the the gratitude of grace. When you have been captivated by the grace of God, there's no person in this world that is too low for you to serve them. Because in the grace of God, we learn both. Of the great love that God has for us. And also we learn that we are sinners separated from God. Desperately needy for that grace. We need the good news of Romans chapter 4-5. This has been stuck in my head all week. That we believe in the God who justifies the ungodly. That we are perpetrators of darkness. That we are the ones committing sin that if we were to ask God to simply wipe evil off the map, and at some point in our lives, that would have included us. The the demonstration of the grace of God must well up within us deep, genuine gratitude. There's, there's, There's not an accident that the New Testament over and over and over and over again tells us to be thankful. To have thankfulness in our hearts. Not just the New Testament, but to give thanks in all circumstances. Because if you have been given everything in Jesus, which you have, you've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus in the heavenly places, Ephesians chapter 1 3, then your life should be perpetually grateful. No matter the circumstances. I'm not saying that you're sometimes that Thanksgiving is not tinged by tears. But it remains. It remains through the sorrow and through the grief. It remains when all of the blessings of this world flow into our lives. And it remains when all of the blessings of this world flow out. You know that there are months and weeks where it's it's like the tide The tides of worldly blessings come in, things seem great, you're riding high, and then the tides of worldly blessings flow out. But dear ones, there is no ebb and flow to the blessings that you've been given in Christ. They are constant, ever present, never retreating, only growing in terms of how you understand them and how you live them and how you believe them and as they transform your life. So having healed Peter's mother-in-law and she begins to serve them, the Sabbath day is now closing. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. You're thinking, why did they wait until now? Because the Sabbath ended at sundown and people could begin to travel greater distances after sundown. So you imagine all of these people, who are, they're sick and they're hurting they're in the grip of Satan. They're in the grip of demons. They see their, their husband or their mother or their cousin or whoever. They know they're demon-possessed. They know that they're gripped in darkness, and they're just sitting at the edge of the door waiting for, for the sunset so that they can get to Jesus there 's such an anticipation they 've heard of his authority in the synagogue they 've heard of what he did with casting out the demon, and now they probably haven 't heard at this point that he 's healed simon 's mother in- law. I wish I knew her name so i wouldn 't have to say that every time that lady that doesn't that 's just too too loose but they all come and the 're sick and the oppressed by demons so all of these people who are both perpetrators and victims in this fallen world, their perpetration, their sinfulness, and their victimhood both drive them to Jesus. And here is the great thing. The sovereign, almighty Savior, with his capable compassion, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And dear ones, that door was and is open. It's open. He's not worn out by the day. He hasn't exhausted his authoritative power. There is no bottom to the sovereign capability of Jesus. There's always room for another one. There's always room for you to say, Lord, I am broken. Lord, I am sinful. Lord, I am addicted. Lord, my relationships are in shambles. Lord, I have been crushed in this world. I'm grieving and mourning and confused. There is always room, dear one. This door is open. And there's no way that the whole city fit in the house. This house that I was referring to earlier, where the archaeology has kind of unearthed it, it was a very nice house for the day. had a courtyard and all sorts of stuff. But there's no way that all of Capernaum was fitting in there. But there's pressing and there's squeezing. And when I think about our world today, and it seems like there not so many people are pressing and squeezing. And I don't, I don't want to presume as to, as to the why, but I think too often we've missed the nature of Jesus. Where he says, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. The door is open. The the door is open. And what would a person who knows, who knows that they don't have it together. Who knows, in fact, that they are not perfect. That they have, in fact, sinned. And when you begin to understand that you can't cover up or pay for or atone for your own sin. What would it say of the person who has that recognition? Or simply walks through the razor blade valley that is this world. Cut up, beaten, broken. You've been there. You are going there. Grief awaits. Grief is behind. There are Great and wonderful times, but dear ones, there's always a hard turn coming. And when we begin to acknowledge that, what would it make us to say, here is the resolution. Here is the one who can set me right. Here is the one who can bring me near to God, the source of life. Here is the one who could deal with my sin. Here is the one who could heal my brokenness, not necessarily remove you from all harm. What would it say of us if we just say, I don't care how wide that door is open, I'm going to go back to my razor blade valley. And if that is you, don't let it be you. Because while the cost of following Jesus is high, take up your cross and follow, deny yourself, That cost is minuscule considering what you're going back to. And there at the door, this open door, he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. The authority of Jesus enters into people's lives with powerful transformation. Transformation. Dear one, when you come to faith in Jesus, there's no way, and Jesus is in your life, the Holy Spirit is infilling you, there's no way you remain the same. The final thing I want to say is this weird last sentence, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Why on earth would Jesus, who is here to make himself known, why would he silence testimony about himself? Because it says they knew him. Because Jesus will not tolerate distorted testimony. Jesus will not tolerate distorted testimony and testimony that comes from the lips or from the mouths of demons no matter its truth will always be absent of something crucial sure the deep demons they would testify earlier on in the synagogue says that you are the holy one of god true true But there is a profound danger in believing that we can have or know Jesus without having and knowing his cross. There is a profound danger in believing that we can have or know Jesus without having or knowing his cross. Because it's at the cross of Christ Jesus says over and over, particularly in the Gospel of John, it's at the, go- at the cross of Christ that his glory is displayed. That the Son of Man is going to be lifted up, and God is going to draw all people to himself. That if your message of the Gospel of Christ does not center on cross burial, resurrection, then you, dear one, are preaching and communicating a distorted Jesus. And there are too many. There are too many pulpits and there are too many churches. There are too many television channels. There are too many Facebook posts, blog posts, blah, 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 that tell you something about Jesus that is a half and partial truth, but they want to omit suffering, death, resurrection. And there is no power in that gospel. The demons believe and shudder, James tells us. But they have no time for the crucified Lord because it's there. It's not in the synagogue with the word of power. It's not simply in raising up the sick. It's not even in calling forth the dead man Lazarus that Jesus crushes the darkness. But it's at the cross. And Satan and his minions will have you delight in all of those other things if it means you do not look to the cross. Because it's there that he de- destroys the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Hebrews chapter 2, 14, 15, 16 in there. That he took on flesh and blood so that he might destroy the works of Satan. And he does, throw th- does so through subverting death. And so he shuts the mouths of demons. And I pray that he would do it today in 21st century America where he would shut the mouths of demons who want to give you a partial gospel that tells you you don't have to suffer, that the cross really isn't necessary. Jesus did it all for you. It's going to be sunshine and rainbows until glory. And we're entering into a period, I believe, as the church in the West, that you it's going to be blood, sweat, and tears to the glory of God. There is a danger in Jesus' distortion. And this is what Satan has been doing from the beginning. Distorting the image of Jesus is just the same. It's a continuation of the work of the serpent in the garden who said, has God really said? So dear one, get acquainted with the Jesus revealed in Scripture Get acquainted with a Jesus who's demonstrated and manifested at the cross. That Jesus considered the cross more a demonstration of his authority and his power and his glory than the mountain of transfiguration where he was transformed. And too often we look for the same in our ministries and in our church. We want the flash and the glitz and the big and the glam. But dear one, live out the life of Jesus. Pick up the broom in the corner. Look for the lowliest. Look for the broken. Look for the grieving and mourning. Look for the over, overlooked. Serve them both in word, telling them of Christ and his love, and in deed. Indeed. And here we have the ministry that God has called us to. Let the world chase the glitter. Let's chase God's glory. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that there would be a summons of your spirit upon the hurting and the broken this morning. Those who know that they have been perpetrating, doing sin. Actively rebelling against you, separated and in need of your grace. And they might not know how to come, but I pray that your spirit would enable them that they would come to you, that they would cry out for help. They would cry out for mercy and for grace. I pray for your church I pray for this church that you would save us from distortion. That you would save us. That you would save us. That you would plant us firmly upon Christ crucified. And risen, that we would know nothing less than this Jesus. That we would preach nothing less, teach nothing less, live out nothing less. And in Christ, would you make us servants? Servants who willingly labor without a claim, not longing for recognition but living to please the God who has saved us and given us so much. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for this moment. Would you have your way? In Christ's name, amen.